Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture. We are a non-profit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This presentation and many others are available through our online library at instituteofcatholicculture.org and on our ICC app. Please view our upcoming schedule of live online events and engage with us on social media. For handouts, links, and further study materials, please visit this program's page on our website or app. We're going to focus on some serious business tonight. That is Boethius. Let's begin in prayer. Blessed is our God at all times, both now and ever, and unto ages of ages. Amen. O Lord Jesus Christ, you who promised that when two or three are gathered in your name, you would be here among us. We ask you to be here now, sending down your Holy Spirit upon our studies, upon our deliberations, that in all things we might glorify your holy name, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, both now and ever, and unto ages of ages. Amen. Excuse me. Kelsey, please introduce a man who needs no introduction at the Institute of Catholic Culture. Thank you so much, Father Hezekiah. Well, it is my pleasure to introduce our speaker this evening. Our speaker this evening is a professor of Greek, Latin, history, and patristics at Our Lady of Guadalupe Seminary in Denton, Nebraska. His master's degree is in classical Greek and Latin, and his doctorate is in the Fathers of the Church. Dr. John Papino has published on the Fathers of the Church and on contemporary church history, particularly Vatican II in the liturgy in the 20th century, and has taught many courses for the Institute of Catholic Culture and our Magdala Apostolate. And it is such a pleasure to welcome back to the ICC, Dr. John Papino. Welcome, Doctor. Good to have you back with us. Hey, thank you, Father. Thank you, Kelsey. And it's good to see everyone. I recognize some familiar faces, and so I say hello to all of you. And for those of you I've never met before, well, I'm very glad uh, to meet you. So, yes, as Kelsey said, and I'm going to get a little autobiographical here, okay, when I, about the, what we're talking about. So tonight we're going to talk about the age in which St. Boethius lived, and which means we're going to talk about the late 5th and early 6th century A.D., usually called the fall, the collapse of the Roman Empire. After all, that's the part of the title of tonight's lecture. We're going to dig into what that means a little bit, if only to provide you with a background to the world into which Boethius was born and lived and was ultimately killed by the authorities. And then just as an aside, there'll be more on Boethius. Boethius's book on the consolation of philosophy is currently the book club book. Some of you may be following that. And also Dr. Kudderbeck, our philosopher and friend, is going to talk about specifically an aspect of one work of Boethius, The Consolation of Philosophy, where he contemplates why do you do good things, I beg your pardon, why do bad things happen to good people, which, as we shall see, happened to him. Now, why am I here in front? What led me to be in front of you here tonight? Besides the generosity of the Institute, there's also the fact that I'm interested in this period. Why? I remember when I was a boy, nine, nine years old, I had this box of colored pencils. And on this box of colored pencils, there was a scene, you know, pastoral scene was painted, and there was a couple of shepherds on there talking. And you could tell by the way they were dressed that they were neither ancient Roman shepherds, nor medieval peasants. 
And I remember thinking to myself, what period of time do these men come from? Because in our, you know, grammar school history books, you had, you know, chapter one, Sumer, chapter two, the Egyptians, chapter three, Greece, chapter four, Rome, chapter five, the Middle Ages. And I want to know, well, what happens between there? And so tonight we're going to talk about that. What happened between the Roman Empire and the age of the Germanic kingdoms? And what is this a collapse? Is it a destruction? And so we're going to be talking about that a little bit tonight, while not forgetting for two reasons. Number one, out of regard for our host, Father Hezekiah, who is an Eastern priest, and also out of regard for the truth that the Roman Empire did not peter out at all in the East until Constantinople fell to the Turks in 1453, so much later. Get the idea? So we're going to talk about the West, Rome specifically, Italy, where Boethius existed, and what's going on. And the period we're talking about here is generally called late antiquity. And that brings us up to the famous date is 476. If you remember your middle school or high school history, you were told that the last Roman emperor, if you're lucky they told you it was for the West, was Augustulus Romulus, deposed by a Germanic barbarian uh, war commander in 486. We'll get back to that in a moment. But in fact, we have to backtrack a little bit into the division of the empire into two halves, because that's going to play a role in terms of the overrunning of the West by Germanic peoples and the lack of support from the East. So we'll begin with slide A. I've got slides and maps and pictures. Those of you who've taken my classes in the past know how much I love those. So if you may have slide A, please. So here you have very bare bones, the division between the East and the West. And as you can see in Europe, it goes right through the Balkans. In fact, you're looking at the origin of what we call balkanization, right? Uh, that these, these Slavs there, well, they'd be Slavs later, were broken into two. So there's Western Empire, Eastern Empire. So the, the, the fall of the emperor really concerns only the West. And this period is not well known enough, which is why we're talking about it tonight. And sometimes you'll hear this era called the Dark Ages, Many different ages have been called the Dark Ages. I think there's reason to believe we're living in a kind of Dark Age today. Some people say 10th century, 9th century. This period has often been called the Dark Ages because we're no longer in the days of Cicero, right, and Horace, and Virgil, and, and Emperor Augustus, and Emperor Claudius, and all these great people. We're not even in the age of Constantine, the first Christian emperor equal to the apostles, who uh, made Christianity polite, meaning you know that you could actually join it. And it's called the Dark Ages wrongly. And there's a great French historian of this period. His name is uh, Henry Irenaeus Maru, who said, he says he thinks that it's because this is a time when the, the Roman Missal was composed, which he calls the greatest work of literature of late antiquity, is the Missal of Rome, the Roman Missal, you know, that you that you have at Mass. So was it dark? You will be able to judge a bit better when we're done. So what is the world then that Boethius is born into? I've tried to clear some of the brush, and there is some uh, myth going on. Now, it is true that the great novelty 
of this period of history is that you have foreign peoples on Roman soil governing themselves as they do so. And if we look at slide B, this we'll see a map of the Roman Empire from the point of view of the migrations of people we call barbarians. We could just simply call them Germans, really, Germanic peoples. Now, it's a bit crabbed, but I just want to focus on a few of these things as pertain particularly to Italy, since Boethius is in Rome. If you look at the solid red line with arrows, right, that is the migrations of the Visigoths, the Western Goths, who in the who so what happened to the Goths? Why are they here? And what's going on? And this is an important part of the puzzle. We have unprecedented pressure on the peoples of what we today would call Eastern Europe. They're mainly Germanic peoples from the arrival of an Oriental people from the steppes of Asia, the Huns. The Huns are putting pressure on these Germanic peoples, and there's no safety valve for them to go anywhere but to cross the river, whether it be the Danube or the Rhine, into the area governed by the Roman Empire. And these Visigoths had been received into the Roman Empire as refugees, put in refugee camps along the Danube, where it says the word Danube actually right there on the map, just to the west of the Black Sea. But they were oppressed. The, the Roman garrison in charge of really helping them, in fact, oppressed them, kidnapped their children to sell them into slavery, fed them dogs and things. So they rebel. They rebel and gain strength. And ultimately, in the year 378, they fought the East Roman army at Hadrianople. Adrianople. You can see it on the map there near Constantinople. And the East Roman army was defeated by the Visigoths. Emperor Valens, who was the general in charge, died in that battle. And then the Visigoths essentially went on a rampage, which brought them to Rome, which they sacked in the year 410. And that is the first time in, a, in about 700 years, seven centuries, that Rome had been taken by a foreign army. The year 410 made people like St. Augustine and St. Jerome weep. And we know this because they said so in their letters. And indeed, it prompted St. Augustine to write the City of God. Ultimately, the Visigoths sent to Aquitaine and then Spain and back to Aquitaine. The Romans actually gave them land to settle in. Aquitaine, where Bordeaux is. And then the Romans asked the Visigoths to help kick the Vandals out of Spain. And the Vandals just went into North Africa, where they sacked St. Augustine's own town, Hippo, even as he lay on his deathbed in 429, 430. And then the Visigoths just stayed in Spain, and they will stay there until the Muslim invasion of 712. Meanwhile, other, other Germanic peoples are coming in and settling the Roman Empire, the Franks, the Burgundians, and others. And in my opinion, okay, there are many reasons given for this event to have happened. 
Some of you, some of them are fanciful. Why did the Roman Empire fall? Some of you are old enough to hear to have heard the theory that uh, it was the lead pipes. There was too much the lead water coming through the lead pipes, and it made them crazy. That's not right, because if we actually look at lead pipes, there's calcium deposits on the inside that shields the lead from the water. Some military men have written about it, strategic mistakes in terms of where fortifications were put. That's quite possible. Moral decadence. Here's a painting many of you will have seen. If you've been to Paris to the Musée d'Orsay, you have seen this painting. Right? Take a look at it. The Romans of the decadence. And what it shows you is people lying around drinking. They're drunk in kind of a, well, it's a revelry, shall we say. And yet, if you look around them, you can see the glories of ancient Rome with statues of philosophers and gods. All right? So that's another view. Well, the Romans were decadent, and so they were overrun by the barbarians for this reason. The problem with that interpretation is that the Roman Empire that was overtaken by the Germanic tribes was not the Rome of that picture. The Rome that was overtaken by the Germanic tribes was a devoutly Catholic Rome with convents and monasteries and churches and a Christianized society. So it's not moral decadence. There are periods of moral decadence earlier, like the 280s for sure, or even if you go back to the first century, you know, people like Caligula, there was moral decadence there. But that cannot account for the fall of Rome to the barbarians at this time. There's another interpretation given, and uh, that is the interpretation given by the English historian Edward Gibbon, and who says in his massive work, The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, that's slide F, here is his reason for the fall of the Roman Empire. He says, the clergy successfully preached the doctrines of patience and pusillanimity, which is kind of the opposite of courage. The active virtues of society were discouraged. And the last remains of military spirit were buried in the cloister. A large portion of public and private wealth was consecrated to the specious demands of charity and devotion. And the soldiers' pay was lavished on the useless multitudes of both sexes who could only plead the merits of abstinence and chastity. So that's Edward Gibbon. He's writing in the 18th century. He's an Enlightenment historian. So for Edward Gibbon, the answer is simply, it's because they were Christians that they fell. All these strong, robust young men who would have been soldiers were now meek monks. Now, this also can't stand because, in fact, there were Christian soldiers. And certainly military valor is not an unchristian uh, virtue. And also, ultimately, monks and even more, I suppose, nuns, are not drawn from the same pool of people as the army is. So it's not as though the the increase of monasteries led to a decrease in the military. No, in the end, and again, this is just my view, it's simply the two reasons. The unprecedented pressure of the Huns on Eastern Europe, number one, And number two, it is true that the Roman armies were 
weaker than they had once been, particularly because it had become an increasingly mercenary army as opposed to a citizen army, and the detachment of the loyalty of the army from the fatherland. And by the time you get to the days of the, of the end of the Western Roman Empire in the 400s, most of the generals and most of the high command is made up of Germanic officers. And so that their loyalties would not quite be the same as it might have been with a citizen army. Now, this having been said, I want to look at two pictures again before we get into the nitty gritty. And here I want to go back to slide C. In terms of the images we have in our heads, this is a paint, a 19th century painting. The painter is called Cole. And he, he painted a series of um, four paintings intended to show the progress of civilization. There's beginnings, there's the pastoral, there's the consummation, which is this, the height of civilization, and then there's the collapse or destruction or decadence. So when we think of ancient Rome in its heyday, this is the picture we have in mind, is it not? Everything is white marble and gleams. Although you should know that all of these white marble temples you see in, in Greece and Italy and all over the Mediterranean basin were actually painted blue, red, yellow, green, all sorts of colors. But I might, and it's often, I think, it's presented to you in gleaming white to give an impression of purity and cleanliness. So this is the image we usually have for the height of the Roman Empire. And the image we have for the collapse of the Roman Empire is slide uh, D. It's the same place, except now you can see it's completely overrun. The statue of the god of war Mars has been decapitated, no head, you see. They've lost that the military valor to fight. Um, you can see kind of in the, the bottom middle, I guess it would be the foreground of the painting, there's a manifestly a Roman matron who is being grabbed at by a barbarian soldier. That's also a part of the imaginary we have of the collapse. There's rape and pillage and things are falling apart. And even the bridge that was there has collapsed and it's been replaced with wood and the wood is falling apart as well. So is that the world that Boethius was born into, that last picture? Was he born into a world of ruins and fires, of marauding barbarians, destroying, helping themselves to things? There's another view of history of this period of, the, of late antiquity, put forward at first by a French historian by the name of Pirenne. And this approach actually has been popular to today, and that is the point of view of continuity emphasizing the things that continued. In other words, rather than looking at the break, looking at the continuity. And he says, this historian, Piren, be careful. One must distinguish a change in administration, on the one hand, and the end of classical civilization, on the other hand. And if you look for continuities, and I think he went a bit far, but he has some arguments, he says that the end of the Western Empire is the 8th century. So you have to wait till the end of even to, to the time of Charlemagne, he would say, when you have the birth of the Holy Roman Empire, which replaces the Roman Empire. One might even say that the, Holy Ro that the Roman Empire of the West, which becomes the Holy Roman Empire, as we know from Charlemagne and his descendants, ended as late 
1918, when the last Austro-Hungarian Empire, Charles Habsburg, who was the heir to the crown of the Holy Roman Empire, which had been made defunct by Napoleon, understood. But he might be the last Chris, he might be the, the last of the Constantines, if you like. So that's pushing it a bit. But what I'm trying to emphasize for you here is to sort of shake away this notion we have of an abrupt break. So was there continuity? Yes, there was. Was there break? Yes, there was. Now let's get into the nitty-gritty and see what we can see. So I mentioned to you how Rome had been sacked in 410, not for the last time. It'll be sacked again throughout the 400s, uh, except Attila never did. Attila was, was repelled in 453 from Rome by St. Peter and Paul and Pope St. Leo the Great. But otherwise, it's, it's going to begin getting, yes, sacked every so often. And what happens in 876, the classic date that we give, is that an army commander who is himself Germanic called Odoacer deposes the last Roman emperor, Romulus Augustulus, a fated name. Romulus is the name of the founder of the Roman Empire, and Augustulus means little emperor. Although you should know that this August, Rom, Romulus Augustus was not really legitimate. He was the son of a man called Orestes, who had driven out the legitimate emperor Nepos and put his son in his stead. In fact, Romulus Augustulus was not even acknowledged as emperor of the West by the emperor of the East, which indicates to you, by the way, the chaotic uh, time we're in from the point of view of the administration. And Odoacer, who's the leader of Rugens, he's kind of the leader of a mishmash of various German mercenaries, who until then had more or less been in the service of Rome. But then they rebelled because the, the emperor, this new emperor, whom they had helped, in fact, gain power, had refused to give land to the soldiers, which is what they wanted, and which they could expect because it had long been the practice, going all the way back to the days of the Roman Republic, that in retirement, a soldier would be given a farm, the, like 40 acres and a mule kind of idea. And indeed, that is what was given to the Visigoths for helping to kick out the Vandals out of Spain and other Germanic auxiliary troops. And so that's when he was deposed. It was over a disagreement in terms of uh, benefits in retirement for soldiers. That's kind of the nitty gritty of that. And so now we no longer have officially a Roman emperor in the West. No one thinks to replace him. And Odoacer holds the place. And in fact, in, they send to the Eastern emperor, the Senate of Rome sends to the Eastern emperor, the regalia of the Western emperor. So the Senate of Rome itself admits, okay, we're not going to have an emperor in the West here anytime soon. So they send all the signs of office of the Western emperor to the emperor of Constantinople, which now realizes that the West is lost. And yet, officially, the Romans of the West understand themselves to be under the rule of an emperor. They say, well, we must be under the, the emperor of Constantinople then. Uh, well, but how about Odoacer? Well, Odoacer is the king of the barbarians, and he's begrudgingly accepted 
given the title by the Byzantine emperor of Viceroy of Italy. And he's declared a, a patrician, a Roman nobleman by the Senate. And this is typical of all the barbarian so-called kingdoms. None of them is setting out to found a new country. What they see themselves doing is running parts of a continuing Roman Empire, which is why they continue to use Roman coin and Latin for administrative purposes. And some of these barbarians have been within the Roman Empire for generations as immigrants, as auxiliary soldiers, to such an extent that they themselves kind of really speak Latin at home already and have considered themselves to be part of the great Roman Empire. Even, um, even Clovis of the Franks is going to seek recognition from the Byzantine emperor. Now, Odoacer, he also had the backing of the Roman Senate, Odoacer did. But soon the emperor of the, Byz of the Byzantine Empire, I guess we'll call it that now, or the, the, the emperor of the East, starts to fear the power of Odoacer, number one. Number two, in the East as well, the army had begun being taken over by Germanic mercenaries, among whom the Ostrogoths. And the leader of the, the general of the Ostrogothic auxiliary troops was Theodoric. And in fact, Theodoric had been given the title of consul designate. And he'd given some Eastern provinces along the Danube to administer as part of the Eastern Roman Empire. But Zeno also saw him, Theodoric, the Ostrogoth, as a threat to his power in the East. So the solution, of course, is to send Theodoric from the East, one threat away, to attack and hopefully kill Odoacer in Rome and get rid of that threat, which Theodoric does. And he does kill uh, Odoacer in 493. And now Theodoric takes over Rome. Boethius, remember, we go, we're talking about him, is a 17-year-old boy at this time. So the 17-year-old boy, Boethius, sees one barbarian king killed treacherously, by the way. What Theodoric had done was to say, look, Odoacer, you and I, we're both Gothic by race. We're both Aryan by religion, by the way. The, all those peoples are Aryans. Why don't we just have a big Germanic feast? Right? We'll put some tables out. We'll drink beer, enough of that wine that they make us drink. And we'll have a great Germanic Gothic feast among ourselves. And Odoacer says, okay, let's do that. And during that feast, Odoacer is strangled. That's how Theodoric takes over Rome. And so now Theodoric has just taken, taken over. In fact, Odoacer, I said strangled, actually, he cuts him down with his sword from collarbone to thigh. So he splits him in half just about. So a nice kind of, you know, a feast, there's beer, there's blood, it's Gothic. So now Theodoric, the Goth, who is king of the Ostrogoths, not of the Romans, but administers Italy and Rome, and in fact expands it. And Theodoric is a great leader. He's a great king. He's going to expand his power, and, get, and he's really going to be a big presence 
as we shall see in just a moment. So by 497, so four years later, the Eastern Emperor acknowledges him as Viceroy of Italy. And you're going to, and he's going to be able to spread his power on this map I'll show you now, which is uh, G, please. This is going to be the full extent of the Ostrogothic kingdom under Theodoric. Now, you'll notice the Visigoths are included, and so the, the Vandals and Burgundians are a little bit included too in a shade. How, how did he manage this? He married the sister of the king of the Franks, Clovis, the founder of the Merovingian line in France. You know Clovis? His sister married Theodoric, and that gave Theodoric some rule over the Burgundians within the Frankish realm. Also, Theodoric's own sister was given in marriage to the king of the Vandals, which gave Theodoric some oversight over the Vandalic kingdom in North Africa. Remember where St. Augustine was dying as his town was being besieged? And furthermore, the king of the Visigoths was a, a child, a boy called Amalaric, who was a grandson of Theodoric, and Theodoric is going to make himself regent of Visigothic Spain while the boy is still young. And that is how Theodoric manages essentially to have this massive kingdom that occupies, as you can see, Yugoslavia, Bavaria, all of Italy, the south of France, Catalonia, Spain, and all the way to the Atlantic Ocean. Not to mention North Africa and a foray into the Frankish realm as well. So this is the kind of man that Boethius is going to serve in the civil service, actually. Now, so officially, he's only the viceroy of Italy, but Theodoric is going to behave and dress like an emperor and be treated as one. And it's pretty clear he takes himself to be kind of an emperor. So what was it like to live in this empire now? Now, so the question is, how un-Roman or how fallen is this kingdom? Theodoric rules his own army as a king does his subjects. Again, he's the king of the Goths. He does still rely, though, on Roman elites for the administration because he knows that they know how to do it. And Theodoric, by the way, you'll remember that Theodoric had been in the administration of the East and had, he had himself, in fact, been educated at Constantinople. This, despite his Gothic name and his Aryan religion, here is a man who knew Greek and Latin and was a pretty civilized sort of person. He's going to leave the Roman law and the Roman elites in place, which is how Boethius ends up being an administrator. And this is typical, by the way, when the Muslims are going to take over, this is centuries later, they're also going to leave the local Byzantine administration in place, including St. John of Damascus so famous for defending the images. He's a civil servant in the Muslim caliphate. Likewise, we're going to see men like Boethius and Cassiodorus, to whom we shall return, elite members of the Roman senatorial aristocratic class who continue to staff high office in uh, Theodoric's kingdom. In addition to this, Theodoric, far from destroying every beautiful white gleaming marble building in sight, builds himself. He repairs aqueducts. He repairs some of the basilicas there in Rome and 
other capitals like Ravenna and elsewhere. He has several churches built. Of course, he's Aryan, so they're going to be Aryan churches. And here, in fact, we're going to see one of the churches he built, Santa Polinare, which is uh, slide H, please. So there we go. This is a church he built with a nice tall baptistery there. And it's gorgeous inside. I will, we don't have time today, but if you have, go on Wikipedia, look for Santa Polinare. Nuovo, it's called, although it's not new. It dates to him. You'll see the inside. The mosaics are just unbelievable. There's a classical statue of him on horseback and other things. So not entirely barbarian. He refurbishes the Wall of Rome. He refurbishes the Palace of Domitian. He refurbishes the Senate House because the Senate was it were on his side, so it kind of coddles them. He refurbishes the Theatre of Pompeii, which is where Julius Caesar had been killed, by the way. He maintains the sewers and the aqueducts. He refurbishes the Colosseum, adds new statues, holds games, even has horse races in the Circus Maximus of Rome. In many ways, Rome is having a new lease on life under Theodoric. All the wealth had gone to Constantinople. Rome had become a kind of a second city, really, a bit like Chicago to New York, if you see what I mean, although I don't want to stretch that particular comparison. But now the seat of government is right here. Real power, not puppet emperors we've had since about 450. And the continuity, as I mentioned, uh, administratively, the Senate continues to function. And there are leading statesmen of the Roman race, include men like Liberius and Cassiodorus and others. However, some small differences. The officers of the military were all Goths. He couldn't trust Romans to, be, to lead men militarily. And some administrative positions that had been important during the empire still exist officially, but nothing really is going on. In fact, Boethius himself complains about this in the Consolation of Philosophy when he says, in fact, the praetorship, so the office of praetor, was once a great office, but it is now an empty name and a heavy burden for a senator's resources. Once if a man had control of the public grain supply, he was called the great. Now, what is more disreputable than that particular administrative position? So I suppose it's a little bit like um, various governors in the Commonwealth today, right? There's a governor in, in Canada. I think even each province has a governor representing the, the crown. And all it means for those people is that they have to buy a fancy costume at their own expense and they don't really exert much power. There's some of that going on in this kingdom. Now, culturally, though, what? how about the culture? Still Latin. They still write in Latin, although the Latin they write is a bit too nice. And you can tell that it's no longer a language they speak very commonly among themselves at that elevated level. And if you want a good idea of what their Latin sounded like, read the sentences produced by the Supreme Court of India, and you'll get the same idea in English. An over-the-top uh, cultivation of rare and unusual words and com complicated sentence structures, kind of to show that you know it, you're good at this language, but it's very artificial. 
you get some of that, which may, even Boethius is guilty of some of that, and it makes it difficult to read in Latin for that reason. He's always looking for the difficult synonym and the complicated structure. Uh, but we'll return to Boethius. Another great man of this time is a fellow by the name of Cassiodorus. Now, Cassiodorus and Boethius share a title, depending on who you talk to, as being the last of the Romans. And it's somewhat fitting, to be quite honest. Cassiodorus lives at the same time as Boethius. They know each other. In fact, Cassiodorus succeeds to Boethius in his office. Cassiodorus is a wealthy aristocrat who's going to be a monk, a bit like St. Gregory the Great. And he's the one who, once he's founded his monastery in the south of Italy, is going to have monks copy out the classics of Latin literature. And that's the beginning of that. Until then, monks, you know, orat labora, liturgy first, and then they plow the fields. With Cassiodorus, part of their work is to copy out Cicero and Horace, and of course, the Bible and the fathers of the church. And he also founded, Cassiodorus had founded in Rome, a library of Latin and Greek books with the Pope. And that library is the origin of the Vatican Library that we still have to this day. Of course, it's going to have many misadventures. So here we have kind of a, a continuity. And while in his monastery, he wrote a book for his monks, Cassiodorus did, the title of which is How to Spell Correctly. And that tells you a lot also about there is some decadence. Okay, I've been pressing the continuity, but there's, some, there's been a drop off in the ability even to spell for two reasons. Number one, the education system is beginning to decay a bit. Like the endowed chairs, like the chair of rhetoric that uh, St. Augustine was given in Milan as the imperial professor of rhetoric in Milan, those professorships, uh, the funds aren't there for those. And that trickles down even to the grammar school level. And number two, the way that Latin is pronounced has become far enough from the way Cicero pronounced it, which was closer to what's on the page, that you couldn't write phonetically anymore. The spelling did not reflect the spoken language, much as in English for us. Right? We think of words like through and though and cough and all those things. It had become like that to them, which indicates two things. Number one, that yes, there's a certain decadence. And number two, there are people who realize that something has to be done about this Let's make sure we copy down the classics for the, for the future, which is what Cassiodorus does. And we'll get to Boethius in a moment, but he does some of that too, preservation of what came before. Now let's get to Boethius, in fact. Boethius himself in this world. So to recap a bit, it's a world in which the notion of a Western emperor is gone for now. There is the empire in people's minds, and in fact, in Byzantium. But Germanic kings are ultimately where the buck stops in terms of power in the West, even though the elites are still the old elites and they can write to each other and kind of make fun of the their Germanic overlords. There's a famous letter, this is over in Bordeaux, when the Visigoths are there, by a Roman, um, he, he's a a man of letters, but he's also a landholder. And he writes this letter to a friend. He said, you know, my new Germanic neighbor had me over for supper last night. So, you know, I took my wife and kids and we had dinner at this place. You will not believe 
what these people eat and how they eat it. Oh, and then he goes into their bad manners and how the pork is roasted and they drink beer, which is fizzy and bizarre. And they use butter to cook in, not olive oil. They have long hair. They wear pants. That's the kind of interaction there is, okay, on either side. But that was a bit earlier. But also, a man like Theodoric, he knows how to handle himself at the dining room table, Theodoric does. They don't have knives and forks, but only the first three fingers to grab the food. You don't grab the food with your latter fingers, you know, and you don't. There's certain ways of breaking the bread. He knows. But if you walk around the streets of Rome, the soldiery is kind of going to be rough and gothic. Number two, and this is important for the rest of the story, the Romans are Catholics and Orthodox. The Germanic rulers are Aryan heretics through a weird twist of history. They happen to be evangelized by missionaries from the empire at the time when the empire was majority Aryan. So now Arianism has come back. And that's a difficulty as well, because it's always going to mean that the Aryan king and his courtiers, although needing to rely on the local Roman elites to, for the administration and things, are always going to be a bit suspicious of them and see them as a possible fifth column for the emperor of Constantinople because of the similarity of religion. And that's going to play a role, as we shall see in just a moment. So who is Boethius? His full name is Anicius Manlius Severinus Boethius, a long and noble name. He's born around the time that the last so-called emperor is deposed. He is His family has been Catholic since the days of Emperor Constantine, equal to the apostles. But he's orphaned as a young man, and he's adopted into the family of the Simakai. Now, the Simakai, of course, are also Christian, but they hadn't always been. They belong to the tradition of the Roman elites that were the last to convert to Christianity. In fact, the Simakai, if we look at slide I, you will see it's a, an ivory diptych that had been commissioned by the ancestors of the Simakai, and it dates to about the year 400, and it purposely shows you a woman of the Simiki family, but you can see a female figure, it'll be on the right side, offering clearly a pinch of incense to the gods in the year 480. So this family is a family that resisted Christianization, and yet by the time they adopt Boethius, they become Christians too. But it, it's they're an ancient and noble family. Boethius is given the very best education. He ends up marrying his stepsister, actually, and there's a detail if we go to the next slide over, slide J. And you see Simicorum at the top, and there she is. So that's the, uh, the ancestress of the wife of Boethius and of his adoptive father, and who is also his father-in-law. Very classical, very backward-looking originally, but that's a couple of generations before. And uh, if we go to the next slide, which is K, we'll actually see um, a painting. It's a fresco of Boethius on the right and Symmachus on the left. You can see their names at the top. Boethius is spelled with a C. 
which tells you a lot, by the way, about spelling. I was talking about spelling with Cassidorus. It's spelled Boethius with a C. Symmachus is spelled correctly, however, so that's good. So there's father-in-law, son-in-law. So his career, Boethius, or I should say his education, his ancestry, his personal charm, all impressed Theodoric, who made Boethius to be a senator in around 500 AD at the age of 25 only, consul in 510, master of the palace, like a minister of internal security, in 522, and his own son, Flavius Boethius, is also made consul in 522. And just to hook the history up together, his granddaughter, the granddaughter of Boethius, will be a letter correspondent of St. Gregory the Great in a couple of generations down the line. So you can see the lofty area where we are. And so he had various duties. He had to look into the paymaster of Theodoric's bodyguard. He had to produce a water clock. He made a water clock or had one built for Theodoric to give to the king of the Burgundians. He recruited a lyre player to play for Clovis. This is the same Clovis, the Merovingian. As part of, and that's how Theodoric was able to expand his power through these matrimonial alliances, as you'll remember. So Boethius was instrumental in allowing Theodoric to expand his power. And he's also producing a lot of works. I mentioned to you how Cassiodorus had his monks copy the classics to preserve them for posterity. Boethius translated a lot of Greek philosophy into Latin because Greek has be, had the knowledge of Greek was falling apart in the in the West. So he translates Aristotle. He translates uh, Porphyry's Isagoge. He comments on the topic uh, of Aristotle. He comments on Cicero. He writes commentaries and things. He's trying to put into accessible Latin, although it's in that weird style I mentioned, the knowledge of antiquity in terms of philosophy and other things too. He does theology too, by the way. Boethius does theology regarding the person of Christ. Kind of dangerous when the king is an Arian. It is Boethius who defends the two natures in one person of Christ in a work by that title. He invents the definition of a person, the individual substance of a rational nature. That's the classic definition of a person used by St. Thomas Aquinas. Boethius coins that using Aristotelian terms. In fact, he had intended to write a massive book of philosophy to reconcile Plato and Aristotle, but he died. Why did he die? Well, there are tensions. The Byzantine emperor, after all, had sent Theodoric to remove Odoaca, remember? And Theodoric knew that that could happen to him. Also, the emperor in the east at this time, so 518 to 527, is Justin, who's a good egg. But his son, or nephew, I should say, Justinian, regarding whom we have a lecture here at ICC, which you're welcome to watch, had always dreamed of reuniting both sides of the Mediterranean into a single empire administered from Constantinople. So he knew that that might be in the works, and he was right, because in the event, it was. Fear of Catholics. Now, for the time being, there was a schism in the East, or between the East and the West. 
the Patriarch of Constantinople was trying not to accept the Council of Chalcedon. There was kind of a monophysite leaning over there in Constantinople, and the popes didn't like it. So as long as there was this theological quibble between Constantinople and Rome, I mean, Catholic Rome, Theodoric rested easy. But that schism is going to be resolved, and suddenly Catholic Romans and Catholic Easterners in Constantinople are going to be chummy again. So Theodoric is a little bit, is getting suspicious. And so there's going to be trouble in paradise. The schism is over. Justin starts persecuting heretics, including Arians. Theodoric doesn't like that. And so Theodoric actually sends the Pope, John is his name, to Constantinople to ask for this anti-Arian persecution to end. And it fails. When the Pope goes to Constantinople, all the people come out and they cheer and clap and say, yes, Pope of Rome, you're, you're among friends here. And John is completely won over. And he says, well, these are my brothers, unlike the king back home, who's a heretic. In fact, he's when the Pope comes home to Rome, Theodoric puts him in jail. Furthermore, and this is a classic thing, Theodoric had picked Boethius to look into the finances the pay, as a paymaster because he suspected that there was graft and grift and corruption. And Boethius, who was a man of principle, did discover the corruption, both among Ostrogothic military officials and Roman Catholic administrators, and he had begun a purge of the administration. At first, Theodoric said, great, this is what I picked him for. But soon, because the, the corruption was spread broadly and with different degrees of depth, Theodoric realizes, well, I can either put an end to corruption and have a clean-as-a-whistle administration and only have one friend, Boethius, and everyone else hates me, or I can try to mitigate this corruption myself, and Boethius is just the odd man out here. No one likes him. You see? So even though he put him in that position, Boethius becomes the whipping boy a little bit. And ultimately, there is something that breaks the camel's back. And it is this. There had been a senator called Albinus denounced by an informer for having treasonous correspondence with the emperor of Byzantium. Okay, so we have a Roman senator who is accused of collaborating with the Byzantine Empire against Theodoric. Boethius defends him because it's a trumped-up charge. Boethius, he never wrote that. So now the enemies of this guy, Albinus, against whom they didn't have a very good case anyway, so let's go after Boethius then. The guy, remember, who caught our hand in the gold pot? Let's go after him. So they accuse him of having written letters in favor of Roman liberty, which can be interpreted as being anti-Theodoric. They accuse him of suppressing evidence of Albinus's treachery, and they even accuse him of being a magician, a wizard. An easy accusation considering he'd produced a water clock, right? And the tragic thing here is that Boethius, when he was defending Albinus, was in fact trying to defend the entire Senate against the accusation of treason. And yet the Senate, feeling the wind turn, 
pounced on Boethius. All the people he had defended and been friendly with turned against him treacherously. And there's evidence that Cassiodorus was pretty silent as well, by the way. That's just between us, okay? Don't tell anyone. But it looks like Cassiodorus is not squeaky clean here either. And so he had to go. And he's condemned for treason, confiscation of goods, exile, imprisonment, more like a house arrest in a villa, not, not a dank dungeon, but he's condemned to death. And there's a heartfelt adieu, which you can see in painting L, image L. This is very romantic, of course. There they, they show him in a dungeon. Didn't really happen. But there's his look, his young, his young son giving him a kiss. I guess a much younger wife there. Maybe it's supposed to be a nurse. Maybe the wife is sitting down. Anyway, so that's the adieu. And actually, he's going to be bludgeoned on the head. And that's the end of Boethius. So you can see we have a man who lives in a very interesting, complicated time, who raises to the pinnacle of power and administration and fame. He has the trust of the leader, Theodoric. And then simply by trying to defend an accused innocent man doing the good, he turns against himself, not only the Goths and Theodoric, but even his own people and his own friends. And he's left alone, abandoned. And that is where, rather than giving in, he gives into depression a little bit, but as he's depressed, lady philosophy comes to him. And then he's able better to understand what misfortune is and what good fortune is. And that will be the topic for other discussions besides mine. And that's all I have to say. So thank you for your attention. Thank you so much, Dr. Pepino. That was really phenomenal and gave us just such, such a great background for understanding this work, the Constellation of Philosophy. All right. So I see that we have some questions coming in and I will just open it up if there's any of our on-screen participants that might have a question. Um, might take one from you since I haven't read through all the ones coming in yet. Bob, did you have your hand raised there? Yeah, you can go ahead and unmute yourself. Maybe not the greatest question to start with, but you can't help but being struck by the brutality of the way uh, he was killed. And I'm just wondering, was that just the norm of the day? I mean, what was the purpose of that incredible brutality? Oh, yes. You're right. He was beaten on the head and his eyes fell out. And it was just a horrible scene. No, I don't know why they did it that way. I, I don't know that there was any stable particular way. There was a difficulty in the sense that there were two competing laws at the time, I guess. There was the law of the Goths and the law of the Romans. And in cases involving the shadow zone between the two, like where a Roman went against the Goth or whatever, there may have been a, sh a shady area regarding the law, and that may have been it. But otherwise, the brutality... Okay, I don't know the answer to your question directly. I do know that some people dispute that it was exactly like that. So then that may have been a, a later embroidering to make it seem even worse than maybe it was. So... Whether it's a fact to begin with is somewhat in doubt, but if it did happen, I don't know what would have motivated the guy in charge of holding the club to be quite so nasty against Boethius, unless it got to the point where the 
obviously innocent man whom everyone agrees must be put away elicits a greater deal, deal of cruelty than actual guilt would have, if you see what I mean. That sometimes happens because of human nature. So I don't know. But in fine, I don't know. Thank you, Bob. We have a question coming in from Jessica. She says, you referred to Boethius as Saint Boethius at the beginning of this talk. Is Boethius a canonized saint? He is in the calendar, in the martyrology. I can't remember what his feast day is. You can Google it for me. But yes, he is in the martyrology of the Catholic Roman Catholic Church. I don't know whether he's considered a saint in the Orient. And there you can go. There's a shrine. I mean, he's buried in Pavia in northern Italy, and you can go and venerate the relics. There it is, October 23rd. Thank you, Angie. Yes, he has a feast day. So, yes. And I kind of did that a bit cheekily on purpose at the beginning in the hopes that someone would pick up on it. So thank you for asking the question. Guys, thank you, Jessica. Viviana, go ahead and unmute yourself and we'll take your question. I was wondering, you know, since God allows everything to happen for the good, I was wondering why would God allow the fall of Rome? Like, what was the good that came from that? That's a very good question. I mean, you'd have to... uh, Can one divine... And guess the designs of providence is the first question there. The fact is that it did allow for the rise later on of and spread ultimately of the Merovingian and Carolingian dynasty, which led to a rebirth of the Holy Roman Empire, which in itself brought about the conversion of the Saxons to the faith. Would that have happened otherwise? It's hard to say. But in itself, the question is a difficult question to, to, to answer and consider even, because we don't know what the alternative would have been. But certainly did not lead to an end of the faith. Empires will come and go. In fact, if you read the Consolation, he talks about this. Empires just come and go. And I'd like to say this to my seminarians too, when we look at these things, don't take it for granted that the United States is going to survive you, right? Like you, Vivian, may may live to see the day when the United States don't exist anymore, or France or Germany, who knows? So these things are contingent things. And there's an entire, if you want to pursue the the ideas behind this, do read St. Augustine's uh, City of God. You can also read some other fathers of the church who all say, because part of your question, I think, implies that the existence of the Roman Empire is in the designs of providence as well, right? And the fathers of the church, all who live in the Roman Empire, by the way, all agree that it is so. In fact, at the very beginning of my uh, history classes, I give a kind of the same lecture at the beginning of each. We discuss why it is that the Roman Empire can be, I suppose, the fathers of the church, and we considered it to be providential in the sense that it provided the early church, the church a birthing with a Roman infrastructure, well, a Jewish messiah a Roman infrastructure and Greek philosophy and language that allowed the gospel to be framed and spread. And that work was done by the time you get to the end of the of the West. So perhaps the Roman Empire in the West had played its role and it was time to move on now. I guess. I mean, your guess is as good as mine. Thank you for that question. Thank you, Dr. Pepino. And I'll just take this opportunity to mention, in case you aren't familiar um, with it, but Dr. Pepino has two semester-long history courses in our IPCC library. So if you do want to take more history classes with Dr. Pepino, please check out his courses in our library. You can start them anytime they're self-paced. 
two great courses. One, the history leading up to the time of Christ, and the second, the history of the church. Uh, All right, we have two questions coming in that talk about life under Theodric. One is, why did Theodric seek to preserve some elements of Roman culture? Second question is, were Catholics allowed to live their faith openly at that time? All right. First question, because he saw the value of it. I mean, he needed to preserve Latin because Gothic did not really have a developed literature. They did have an alphabet because we have a, the Bible was put into Gothic by the Arian missionary. His name was Ulfilas, and we still have that Bible. It's the Gothic Bible of Ulfilas, which is an Arian Bible. But that, but Greek and Roman culture was the culture. I don't think these people could imagine things being otherwise, just as they did not perceive themselves as replacing the Roman Empire with something else, simply running the Roman Empire. Likewise, they saw they were not there to destroy what they found, but rather really enjoy it, if you like. So they were kind of, they were more like immigrants in many ways than conquerors. And I think that's how they saw themselves. They were not colonizing the Roman Empire. They were moving in and taking over, for sure, but not with a view to replacing what they found. They wanted what was there. That's what they came for. And it's the classic story of an enemy immigration wave. And I mean, just I, I'm not going to be political, but I mean, the, the, the comparison presents itself. People who are currently immigrating to the US are not coming to turn the US intentionally into the place they're running away from. They're coming to the US for the benefits they see in what's here. And that is essentially what they were doing. Number one. Next, how were the could the were the Catholics free to worship in Theodoric's realms? Yes. In other realms, not so much. So, for example, the Vandals, and again, depending on, I mean, we're talking about generations here. But in the early generations of Vandalic rule, first in Spain, then in North Africa, Catholics were persecuted and bishops were killed in the streets and exiled. There's no doubt. The successors of St. Augustine were exiled by the Vandals. Later on, less so. But Theodoric and his Ostrogoths generally permitted Catholic worship, and it wasn't a a big problem. And by the way, the Ostrogoths, just to put an end to the story, this is after Boethius' death, the Byzantines are going to come over, and they are going to conquer Italy, and they are going to put an end to Ostrogothic Italy. And then it becomes Byzantine Italy. And then later, Lombards come down and then Franks. But that's for another day. Thank you. Richard, why don't you go ahead and ask your question, and then we'll take Travis, your question after that. Okay, thank you. What part may corruption have played in the fall of the West? That's difficult to gauge because there's always been corruption in the Roman Empire, particularly when it comes to taxation, as we know. I mean, in the gospel, you have a very clear, and that probably was widespread. I mean, Judea was particularly squeezed, particularly strong for taxes, and you can tell by a number of reasons. But was corruption any, you mean like administrative corruption, that sort of thing? Like misallocation of funds, that kind of corruption, maybe? Well, it would be corruption of rule, handing on jobs to your favorite, what they call that. Uh, oh, nepotism, maybe? Yes, nepotism, yeah, you know, thank you. That had always happened in the Roman Empire. That was the nor- That was the way business was always done. So I, I haven't seen anyone say, well, it got particularly bad at this time. 
there'd always had been nepotism and graft and and uh, tax squeezing and so forth. So from that point of view, I don't think things had changed too much. But where the corruption really got, I mean, I can point to one place where, yes, and that would have been the treatment of the Visigothic refugees in those camps in the 350s, 60s, and 70s. The corruption was so bad. I mentioned dogs and kids. What they would actually do is that they would say to these starving refugees, you want to eat? Here's a dog. It will cost you two children. One dog of the Romans is worth two Gothic children who would immediately be sold into slavery, something to awful lives. And that's why they rebelled and ultimately led to crisscrossing the empire. So, yes, there I could pinpoint a specific example of abuse of power. But otherwise, in the rest of the empire, to my knowledge, the corruption was just no more or less than before. Uh, Travis, I guess. Thank you, Doctor. Were the So just a broader context question. Were the Visigoths in Spain Aryans at this time as well? And if so, when did they convert? Right. The, yes. The Visigoths of Spain were Aryans. The Suevi, if you remember that map, who lived in the northwest corner of Spain were Catholics. They had been turned Catholic somewhere along the line. What happened there, the story of Spain turning Catholic is interesting. So you have this Visigothic presence, the kings, the nobility are all Visigoths, they're all Aryans. The population beneath them are Romans and uh, Celtic Iberians, Latin-speaking Catholics. What happened is that um, in the 570s, one of the princes, so the king is called Leovigild, he's Visigothic and Arian. He has two sons, Hermengild and Ricared. Hermengild marries a Frankish princess. Now, the Franks, when they crossed the Rhine, had been still pagans, so untouched by Arianism. And when Clovis married his Burgundian wife, he received baptism as a Catholic in 496, and then all of his descendants. And somehow these Frankish princesses descended from Clovis tended to marry uh, into other Germanic races and somehow converted them. That's part of the conversion of England is also thanks to a Frankish wife at the time of St. Augustine of Canterbury. And in Spain, so he marries, so this Herman Guild marries um, a Frankish princess and she converts him and there ensues a civil war between St. Hermengild and his father, Leovigild. Hermengild is caught in battle, put in a dungeon, and his father sends an Arian bishop to give him communion, and the son refuses so obstinately that he ends up dying. I mean, they kill him, and that's why he's a martyr. St. Hermengild, there's a feast in there. It is a, a, on, the, on the calendar. Then his dad, Saint Le I mean, not Saint, the heretic evil king, Leovigil, dies. He's succeeded to by his son, Recared, Richard, we would say. And Richard receives, probably through his brother's prayers from heaven, the Catholic faith. And there's a council in 589. It's the third council of Toledo. And at that council, the Visigoths convert as a group. And the Visigothic bishops convert and become Catholic bishops, actually. They, they they convert en masse. And one of the Catholic bishops who was there who was already Catholic, he was the brother of St. Isidore of Seville, actually. I mean, these are, he says, finally now the prophecy is fulfilled. Thy, thy house, O Lord, has become a house of prayer unto the nations. 
And then a couple of generations later, the Muslims take over. So there was a brief window where, yes, Spain became entirely Catholic. And that's 589. Yeah. Good questions, Travis. One question a couple of people have asked. You mentioned that Boethius had written um, or had made many translations himself. Right. Do those translations of his and any commentaries he might have written still exist to this day? And if so, are they accessible to us? And then related question is, do you have any recommendations for other works we might read? Of course, next to the Constellation of Philosophy itself, but other works that you might recommend. Right. Well, the answer is yes, 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 and yes. We have most of those. And as a matter of fact, I'm just myself undertaking with a colleague of mine at the seminary, we, we're beginning to read his translation of Porphyry's Introduction to Logic, the Isagogy. And what's neat is you can buy it in facing page Greek, second century Greek, both his Latin translation, and then you can follow it in an English translation. There are many of those. There's, for those of you who know Spanish or are Spanish speakers, there's even an, an edition at Anthropos Press. We have Greek and Latin at the top, and the bottom is Spanish. So you can read it that way too, if you like. This is for the Isagogy of his. His work on the on the uh, natures and person of Christ against Nestorius and Eutyches, for those of you who followed that history a little bit, that can be read in facing page trans Latin on one side and English on the other side in the Loeb Classical Library series. If you just go into the website of any university library catalog and punch in Boethius, you'll see what's available right there. And there are many things there. Now, I will say this. A lot of it is extremely highly specialized logic, philosophy, theology. And it's I'm reading it. My colleague is a professor of philosophy, and I'm glad I'm reading it with him so he can tell me what's going on in there with genus, species, accident, substance, all this business. I I know I've got the Greek and the Latin. He's got the ideas. And that's what I, I told I warned him, look, I'm kind of dull at this. But for the general public, actually, the consolation was is a good one to get into. And the translation that Kelly just showed, there are many translations. But this translation, which I discovered last year, I'd always used another one, which is good enough. But I really prefer the one that Kelsey has there in her hand. Mm -hmm. And that's with um, by Joel Relihan. Yeah. The book club is using a different translation, but oh. uh, this is one that I have on hand. Okay. Oh, it must uh, be what Esalen. I wonder what um, Esalen likes, actually. I have to find out. I have to go to the I website. Think, Georgie, are you holding it up there? Yeah. It is listed on our ICC website, okay. so you can find that. that and there are two famous ones, but there are many others, too. Mm -hmm. So, yes. That, so, I see Rowen Patino. Yeah. So, it's the, the series is it's uh, Anthropos Press. Great. Well, I think we will end there. Thank you so much, Dr. Perpino, for that really phenomenal lecture. I'm so glad we got through so many of the questions also. We always just delve into to so yeah, much. No, it's a fascinating period and it's understudied, as I said, to go back to the beginning. Usually Roman Empire falls, then Dark Ages. And we never forget, well, what was it like right there in the middle? And that's what fascinates me. And that's what led me to that. So I was very glad to be able to share it with all of you to see some some familiar faces and thanks for being so competent kelsey things went well oh thank you so much if you would mind closing us in prayer that would be lovely certainly in the name of the father and the son and the holy ghost amen glory be to the father and to the son and to the holy ghost as it was in the beginning is now and ever shall be world without end saint boethius pray for us in the name of the father and the son and the holy ghost amen we hope you enjoyed this program from the institute of catholic culture 
Remember to download our app and share our online library with friends, co-workers and family members. To learn more, get involved and support the Institute's work, visit instituteofcatholicculture.org and visit us on social media.